So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, where on this first Sunday of Advent, we're going to consider verses 1 to 11. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. As we said a moment ago, uh, during our corporate element, the Advent season is a time for the church both to look back in celebration and to look forward in anticipation. And there are few places in Scripture that better help us look back and look forward than the book of Isaiah. So, that's where we're going to be for these four weeks, and I'll ask you to follow along with me as we read now from God's Word uh, this morning. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field, the grass withers The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we ask for Your help now to hear the Word of God with ears of faith. Father, I pray for hearts and minds that may be distracted today, that You would, right now by Your Holy Spirit, grant them the grace to hear Your Word and to hear it with faith. Father, I pray for hearts and minds that may be cold this morning, where today feels like just another day, another Sunday, another Lord's Day, another sermon, another song, another prayer. I pray for hearts that are cold, Father, that You would warm them and stir them by Your Spirit now through Your Word. Father, I pray for hearts that are wayward. Those who have come today perhaps keeping something in the dark or resisting, God, the work of Your Spirit, I ask, Lord, that You would soften their hearts now by Your Word. Father, and I pray for hearts and minds that are encouraged, hearts and minds that are joyful. We pray, Father, that their joy would be our joy and that You would strengthen them, Father, more and more in the faith. 
God, whatever it is that we need today, please work by Your Holy Spirit now. And grant us the grace that we so desperately need. Grant us that grace, Father, through Your Word. Lord, please keep me from error. Help me to say things that are true and in accordance with the Bible. Remind us, Father, that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We pray that You would feed us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we are people who live in between the times. This is always true of the church, but we are perhaps especially mindful of this during Advent. Our lives are very much defined by two days. The Lord's Day, the day when Jesus took back up His life again in victory over the grave, and the last day when the Lord Jesus will return again to gather His church. Those two days capture the story of our lives as Christians. We live now because Jesus died and rose again, and we will live forever because Christ will return in glory to save His church to the uttermost. As Christians, we live in between the times. We live in between those two days. And that means learning to wait is a central act of the Christian life. That's really what we're doing right now. We're here on the Lord's Day, worshiping the risen Jesus, while we wait for the last day, when the ascended Christ will return again. That's really what we're doing right now. And yet, to borrow a phrase, the the waiting is the hardest part, isn't it? The waiting is the hardest part. This is why as a kid, the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas were a thousand years long. Because the waiting is the hardest part. It takes forever to get there. It's hard to wait, isn't it? And that's true of the Christian life as well. We celebrate the Lord's Day while we wait for the last day. And friends, this is where the prophet Isaiah can help us. You see, the prophet Isaiah also lived between the times. On the one hand, Isaiah faced the day of God's judgment. A day that he predicted time and time again. In in fact, from chapter 13 until about chapter 34 in Isaiah's prophecy, nearly the constant message of his ministry is a warning of judgment. Over and over, Isaiah warned the nation of Judah that they would be exiled from the promised land. That judgment was coming. And yet, on the other hand, Isaiah also faced the day of God's salvation. You see, beginning here in chapter 40 and stretching until the end of the book, Isaiah predicts a new day. One that promises nothing less than light and life and glory for the people of God. So, Isaiah lived in between these two days. The day of God's judgment and the day of God's salvation. He predicted the exile and he foresaw deliverance. The question then is, how did Isaiah navigate the time between the days? If the waiting is the hardest part, how did Isaiah endure the waiting? Well, the answer, friends, is by looking to the promises of God as revealed in His Word. You see, the promises of God allowed Isaiah to understand that while judgment was coming, it was not the end. There was a redemption coming as well. There was deliverance coming as well for those who believed. And and brothers and sisters, that's Isaiah's testimony to us 
Today, as we wait in between the Lord's day and the last day, we are sustained by the promises of God that have been given to us in His Word. This is why Isaiah is so helpful during the Advent season. We look back to God's promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then armed with renewed faith, we look forward to the last day when those promises are consummated in Jesus' return. If the waiting is the hardest part, and it is, then we endure the waiting by standing on the promises of God. And our passage today, this morning in Isaiah 40, is the beginning of a glorious section of those promises. You can think of Isaiah 40 as the first link in an indestructible gospel chain. The links of this chain are God's promises through the prophet Isaiah. And these links will stretch on to chapter 55 here in his book. In fact, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 are one sustained meditation on Isaiah's part. And if you don't have a plan for Advent, you might consider following uh, the reading plan that's available in the foyer uh, that we put together for you that takes you through chapters 40 to 55 on the 24 evenings of Advent. The reading plan is there in the foyer. From 40 to 55, there's this gospel chain that stretches in Isaiah's ministry. And then that gospel chain stretches on into the New Testament where we find each of the links in Isaiah's chain prepares us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this gospel chain and it begins here in chapter 40. And you don't have to look any farther than the first word of the chapter to find Isaiah's theme. You see it there in verse 1, the very first word. Comfort. That's the beginning. That's the first link. That's the outset of Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah's gospel chain starts with this good news that there is comfort for the people of God. Of course, that word comfort calls for more explanation. Comfort for whom? Comfort for... From whom? And for what purpose? And the rest of the passage spells out all of those answers. And and that's where we're headed this morning, friends. I'd like to draw your attention from this text to four sources of comfort that Isaiah proclaimed to the people of God. Four sources of comfort. Each one connected with the promises of God and each one forming a link in this gospel chain that stretches on to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see the comfort of God's grace. The comfort of God's grace. We've just noted that the first word of the passage, comfort, gives us the theme. But it's the previous chapter that gives us the context. Chapter 39, if you flip just one page back, chapter 39 closes with what is surely the worst news in the history of Jerusalem. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to destroy the city, and they're going to take God's people captive into a foreign land. Exile, in other words, is chapter 39, and that was the worst news that you could hear as a citizen of Jerusalem. So when chapter 40 opens with this trumpet blast of comfort, you have to understand that this is nothing but grace for God's wayward people. Nothing has changed in the people from chapter 39 to chapter 40. Nothing has changed. They deserve judgment. 
They've broken God's covenant. They've worshipped other gods. They've ignored their neighbors in order to love themselves. When you live like that, friends, Babylon is what you get. Exile is what you deserve. And yet, in the muck and mire of Israel's sin, what does the holy God say to His people? Verse 1, chapter 40. What does He say to them? He says, comfort. Comfort My people, says your God. That pronoun is key, friends. Notice that the message of comfort does not come from the God, but from your God. Amazingly, God remains loyal to His people. Even though they are faithless, He is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. Though they have sinned, they still belong to Him. You see, this is grace and nothing but grace. Nothing has changed from 39 to 40 in the people. It's just grace that says comfort. The people deserve condemnation, but in their misery, God declares His comfort. But Isaiah doesn't leave this grace undefined, friends. In verse 2, we see that this grace results in pardon. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Friends, when you're a criminal staring a life sentence in the face, there's no sweeter word than pardon. Forgiven. Released. And that's the grace that God declares in verse 2. At His own initiative, God forgives the sin of His people. And the idea here is satisfaction, that the punishment has been dealt with completely and totally. Think of a cup. And in that cup is the judgment of God. For your sins, God says. And somebody's got to drink that cup. Verse 2 is telling us that the cup is empty by God's grace. That the judgment is complete. And that therefore the pardon envisioned here is total. You see, that's the heart of this comfort. It's that God Himself has taken action to deal with His people's sins, and He has done this so thoroughly that the only word to say now to the people of God is pardoned, forgiven, free, released. It's grace. Nothing but grace. Now you might be asking yourself at this point, or at least you should be asking yourself, how does God do this? How can He pardon sin while also maintaining His own holiness and justice? That's a great question, friends. It's arguably the most important question in the Bible. How does a holy God forgive sin? And the answer, surprisingly, for this passage, comes in Leviticus, of all places. I could have given you 66 guesses, and the 66th might have been Leviticus. The answer comes in Leviticus, of all places. Here's what I mean. The form of the verb used here in verse 2 is used only elsewhere in the Old Testament in Leviticus. And in every instance in Leviticus, do you know what the topic is? The blood sacrifice of atonement before the Lord. So the verb of verse 2 in Isaiah 40 is used only in Leviticus in this form. And the topic in Leviticus is always what? The shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's the answer. How can sin be paid for? Because, and only because, an atoning sacrifice stood in the place of sinners. Forgiveness, in other words, friends, is not cheap. It's purchased with blood. 
Brothers and sisters, do you see why I say this chain of promises that begins here in Isaiah 40 stretches into the New Testament and brings us face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ? Redemption, as Paul tells us in Romans 3, is found only in Jesus Christ. Why? Because God put Him forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means to satisfy. So Jesus Christ satisfies God's wrath by His blood. Jesus receives our double portion so that there is none left for the Christian. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. This is the good news of Advent, brothers and sisters. This is why all of the Christmas carols sing about joy and grace and comfort. It's because of God's grace that sent His Son into this world to take on human flesh for us and for our salvation. This is why there is joy at Christmas. In fact, this is the entire reason why the incarnation of the Son of God happened. Ask yourself this question. Why did the Son of God have to take on human flesh? Precisely so He could shed His blood to redeem God's people. That's why. Please don't miss the gospel heart of Advent, friends. God's people are pardoned because God's Son was punished. God's wrath is satisfied because God's Son drank the cup of judgment. God's people have comfort because God's Son bore the condemnation. This isn't vague comfort in Isaiah 40. It's gospel comfort. And it's yours only because of Christ. The prophet Isaiah cannot see the cross yet, but through the Spirit, he is speaking better than he sees. And he's reminding us that pardon for the people of God comes only through sacrifice. It's the comfort of God's grace. The second source of comfort completes the picture. The picture is incomplete so far. The second source of comfort reminds us why God gives this kind of grace. Look, at me, look with me in verses 3-5 through five, where we see the comfort of God's presence. The comfort of God's grace leads us into the comfort of God's presence. In verse 3, we're introduced to a key feature in the chapter, a voice that cries on God's behalf. You see that there in verse 3, there's a voice. You'll find the same feature again in verse 6, and then again in verse 9. And that's actually how you, how you discern the structure of the passage. It's how you break it down. God speaks in verses 1 and 2, and then a voice speaks in verses 3 and 6 and 9. You see, the Bible is telling you how to read itself. It's showing you there how to break it down. And in verse 3, this voice declares a message of preparation. Notice again what the text says, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now here's the important point, friends. The highway of verse 3 is not for the people to travel back to God. It's actually the opposite. The highway here is for God to come again to His people. You see, the theme of grace continues, doesn't it? How will the exile end? Not with the people coming back to God, but with God coming Himself to His people. And this highway will be smooth, verse 4 says. There will be no obstacles in God's way. 
He will come to redeem His people. You see, friends, this is how salvation always begins. Mark it down. You find salvation in the Bible, it always begins not with the person's movement to God, but with God's movement towards the person. In every instance, God comes to save and to redeem. The highway is being prepared because God is coming, Isaiah says. But the pinnacle arrives in verse 5. Verse 3 prepares the way. Verse 4, creation responds. And then verse 5, the glory comes. Look at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Friends, this is the center of the passage. At the heart of chapter 40's comfort is the glory of God. You could even say that the glory of God is the very center of the good news that Isaiah preaches. This is very important, friends, but we often overlook it. Forgiveness is a means, not an end. The goal of forgiveness is not simply to give us a clean slate in life. No, the goal of forgiveness is that we get God in all of His glory. I'm forgiven so that I can be reunited with the Holy God. You see, forgiveness is, not a, mean, is a means, not an end. We're forgiven so that we can get God. He is our treasure. God pardons His people, as it says in verse 2, so that His people might see His glory and not be destroyed, but be overjoyed. You are forgiven so that you can be with God. The great goal of God's redemptive love is that we see His glory and then we love it forever and ever without end. Listen, this is what the entire storyline of the Bible has been driving at since Genesis 3. Think about it. The heartbreaking tragedy of Genesis 3 was not that mankind lost this garden paradise. The heartbreaking tragedy is that we lost the privilege of dwelling in the presence of God's glory. We lost God, in other words, in Genesis 3. We could no longer dwell in His presence. And yet, ever since that tragic day in the garden, what has God been doing? He's been pursuing His people with the promise of redemption. And at each point in redemptive history, there have been these echoes of glory. They're easy to miss as the storyline's going along, but if you zoom out a little bit, you can see them very clearly. They're these echoes of glory at each point in redemptive history. What did Moses see on Sinai when he received God's law? He saw a glimmer of the glory of God. Remember that? Exodus 34. What did Israel see when the tabernacle was finally completed there in the wilderness? They saw the glory of God descend in a cloud and indwell the temple. What did Isaiah see at the outset of his own ministry? Chapter 6, here in this book, he saw the fringes of God's glory in the heavenly throne room. You see, redemptive history has been driving at this grand purpose that God's people would again see His glory and delight in it forever and ever without end. That's the purpose of salvation, friends. That's the reason why we've been redeemed. And that's what Isaiah is anticipating here in chapter 40. The way is being prepared, verse 3. God is coming again, verse 4. And when He comes, all creation will see the glory of God and marvel in His presence. Friends, this is, this is the wonder of Advent. The birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of verse 5 here in Isaiah 40. All flesh will see the glory of God. Where will they see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Think about what the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his Gospel. 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His, what? Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Isaiah looked forward to the day when God would come again to redeem His people. And the Gospel picks up Isaiah's promise and says to us, God has come to earth. And He's come in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if I were just to speak very frankly with you, I would say, let this truth be the source of your joy and satisfaction during the Advent season. Don't be content with mere sentiment and nostalgia. Those things are good, but the joy they provide won't last. The glory our souls were made to see is found only in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every soul is hungry for glory, and the glory we're made to see is found only in Christ. And so I just ask you, how long has it been? since you've paused to wonder at the miracle that is Jesus Christ. How long has it been? Here is God and man together in one person. Here is the glory of God in human form. Here is the love of God in flesh and blood. Here is the wonder of wonders that God Himself would humble Himself in such lowliness so that He might raise us up with Him in Christ. How long has it been since you've just paused in wonder to marvel at the miracle that is Jesus Christ? Friends, I I am utterly convinced that many of our struggles as Christians begin right here. We're hungry for glory, but we're looking in the wrong places. We're thirsty to be satisfied, and we're looking in the wrong places. We lose sight of the glory of God in Christ. We get distracted with all these lesser glories. But friends, that's the blessing of Advent. That's why we do this every year for just a few weeks out of the calendar. We're compelled to stop. We're compelled to slow down once more and gaze upon Christ. And remember, this is why we've been redeemed. This is why we've been forgiven. So that we might behold the glory of God and be satisfied in Him and then be transformed into His same image. So once you receive that comfort, brothers and sisters, don't settle for the lesser saviors the world holds out to you. Don't settle for the world's counterfeit joys. They all turn to dust in your mouth. Behold God's glory in Christ and let the glory of the Savior satisfy your soul. It's the comfort of God's presence. Now, as we reflect on that comfort, there's a question in the passage that demands an answer. Remember, up until this point, Isaiah's ministry has largely been warning the people of God's judgment. The the Babylonians are coming, and God's people are going to go into exile. And, And that creates this question. Based on the circumstances, it seems that the powers of this world are more powerful than God. To to put it in the terms of Isaiah's ministry, if the Babylonians arrive before God does, then where's the comfort? Do you see the problem? If the Babylonians beat God's promises to the punch, how are we supposed to be comforted, Isaiah? That's, that's, That's the problem. That's the question. It's the same question that faces God's people today. On the one hand, 
We have the forces of this world that are arrayed in battle against our faith. And on the other hand, we have the promises of God, which if we're honest, at times appear no more than words on a page. You see, our, our situation is actually pretty similar to Isaiah's. So where's the comfort? That, that's, that's the question that is stirring as we go in the passage. Where's the comfort? It demands an answer. And in God's mercy, the text does give us an answer. It's the third source of comfort in verses 6 to 8. The comfort of God's sovereignty. It's the comfort of God's sovereignty in verses 6 to 8. Again, a voice cries out in verse 6. And this time the voice presents a striking image. Notice verse 6. All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. Now, if your house has a front yard, then you know that no matter how hard you work, there comes a point every year when that luscious green grass turns brown and lifeless. It happens every year, right? Except for this one house in this one neighborhood, I know they must have a lot more money than me. But there's, right, at my house, the grass turns brown at some point, no matter how hard I try. And the same is true for humanity, right? The same is true for people. That's the point of verses 6 and 7. No matter how strong we might feel, there's always an end to our strength. No matter how full of life you are, there's a day coming when your vibrancy will fade. That's true for everyone. That's even true for those human foes that are arrayed against the people of God. And why do we fade? Why do human beings fade? What determines the course of our life and our strength? Well, notice verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. You see, it is God who determines the course of life. That phrase, the breath of the Lord, is the same phrase for the Spirit of the Lord. It's the same word. The breath of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord. And that's Isaiah's point. Human beings are not masters of their own fate. The power of both life and death are in God's hands. And by His Spirit, He both brings life and takes it away. If human beings are like flowers, as verse 6 says, then it's the Spirit that causes us to bloom, and it's the Spirit that makes us wilt. Our lives are in God's hands. And that truth is the antidote to both pride and fear. We should not think too highly of ourselves, for we are but grass compared to the Spirit of God. And we should not fear any other person, for they too are subject to to God's Spirit. But that just pushes the question back a level. We shouldn't trust in ourselves, and we shouldn't be afraid of other people, but still, Isaiah, where's the comfort when all the world is arrayed against us? When the Babylonians are beating down the door, where's the comfort? Where do we turn? Where do we go? Verse 8. Notice the comfort of verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. That's the comfort, friends. God's Word is not like the grass of the field. It's not like the flower of the garden. God's Word endures forever. It never changes. It never falls short. And it's never overthrown. God's Word endures because His Word is the expression of His sovereignty. God's speaking is His doing, as one theologian has put it. When God speaks, He acts. His Word does what it says. His Word is the expression of His sovereignty. So when we read the Bible, 
we're not simply reading words on a page. If I could convince one Christian in the world of one truth, this would be it. When you're reading the Bible, you're not just reading words. You're availing yourself of the power of God. You're reading what He promises to do. When you open the Bible, you come face to face, eye to eye, ear to ear, with the voice of the sovereign God. And His voice expresses His unstoppable power. His speaking is His doing. If you want Him to act, take up His Word and read. Friends, this is why the Lord Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is how God's people are sustained. Not by our own strength, which fades like the grass, but by the enduring Word of God. Faith feeds on the Word of God, friends. If your faith is weak, there's no other nourishment for it other than the Word of God given to you. I said it a few weeks ago in the sermon. The only thing that the pastors of this church have to give you is the Word of God. That's it. That's all we have. And it's enough. It's enough. Verse 8 says, it's enough. That's the answer we need when the world is arrayed against us. We don't trust in ourselves and we don't fear other people. We go to God's Word. We trust in His promises and we remember that His Word endures forever. And there's no word more powerful than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter in his first letter, actually quotes these very verses from Isaiah chapter 40. He quotes verses 6 and 7 in 1 Peter chapter 1. And when Peter quotes these verses, he then follows it up with this amazing statement. Peter says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word of God in Isaiah 40 that endures forever, the apostle Peter is telling you that word is the good news of Christ. It is the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And that's perhaps the most important takeaway that God is urging us to receive here in Isaiah chapter 40. The gospel will not fail you, brothers and sisters. The gospel is the good news that God's sovereign power will not fail to save all whom the Father has given to the Son. The gospel will not fail you. You may be racked with guilt over sin that you have committed. Maybe you're racked with that guilt this morning over sin that you have done. And the Gospel will answer that guilt with the full pardon that Christ secured at the cross. You may be shackled with shame over sin that is committed against you. Guilt and shame are the twin powers of sin. Guilt, the sin that we have committed Shame, often the sin that is committed against us. You may be shackled with shame this morning over sin that was done to you. And the gospel will destroy that shame with the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. It's actually one aspect of Jesus' work, expiation. He cleanses His people. He takes away their shame. You may be fearful that God has abandoned you or that He has failed to hear your prayer. You, have made, you may have prayed the same prayer for as many years of your life as you can remember praying. And you may be fearful that God has abandoned you or that He has failed to hear you. And the Gospel will answer that fear with the good news that He who did not spare His own Son will not fail to graciously give you all things in Christ Jesus. 
guilt, shame, fear, whatever it is, friends, the gospel will not fail you. You will fail yourself. And other people will fail you, sometimes spectacularly so. And the gospel will not fail you. Every promise finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And therefore, those who are in Christ will never be put to shame. This is the comfort of God's sovereignty. And it is given to you, brother and sister. It is given to you in the good news of Jesus Christ. The Word of God will stand forever, Isaiah says. And Peter tells us that Word that stands forever is nothing less than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Receive it. Believe it. There's one more truth to add. And we're going to close with this. God's sovereignty by itself might intimidate us. God is so mighty, so powerful, we might struggle to believe that such an awesome God stands ready to welcome us. And that's why we need the the final source of comfort in this text from verses 9 to 11. It's the comfort of God's compassion. It rounds out the picture of sovereignty, the comfort of God's compassion. In verse 9, we hear the final voice of the passage. And this time, the voice calls God's people to announce the good news far and wide. You see it there in the text, verse 9. Go on up to the high mountain, the voice declares, and herald this good news. Then verse 10 summarizes what we've seen so far. God is coming to redeem His people. Notice again verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Friends, that's verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 8 all summarized in one phrase. There is redemption for the people of God and there is nothing that will stand in the way when the sovereign God comes to save His own. That's verse 10. It summarizes everything. But it's verse 11, brothers and sisters, that rounds out the picture for us. It's verse 11 that reminds us that this sovereign God is also our compassionate shepherd. Notice again verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Friends, that's a wonderful picture of God's heart for his people. Like a careful shepherd, God gathers his people in his arms and he leads them into the good pasture of his presence. Do you see the connection there between God's arm in verse 10 and His arm in verse 11. The same God whose arm is mighty to save is the God who extends that arm in gentleness to carry His sheep when they cannot carry themselves. Verse 10, His arm is mighty. Verse 11, His arm stoops down to gather His own. Friends, if your understanding of God includes only power, then you don't know the fullness of God. He is mighty and gentle. He is sovereign and compassionate. He crushes his enemies and he carries his own sheep. He does both of them. And nowhere is this truth more clear than in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, after all. He's the good shepherd. And through his flesh and blood ministry, the Lord Jesus shows us both God's sovereignty to save and his compassion to carry His people. I I love this. Before the coming of Christ, verse 11 here in Isaiah 40 was just an image. 
It was just a metaphor. Remember, God is a spirit and has no body as we do. So verse 11, here in Isaiah 40, before the coming of Christ, it's just a striking image. It's, it's moving, but it's a metaphor at best. But with the incarnation of Christ, verse 11 becomes a flesh and blood reality for the believer. We have a good shepherd, brothers and sisters, not one who comes to us in a metaphor, but one who comes to us in human form, in flesh and blood, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, the one who gathers his people in his arms and leads them to the good pasture of God's presence. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, that good shepherd is holding out to you He's holding out to you here in His Word this good news of comfort. If you don't know Christ today, there is no comfort apart from the Lord Jesus. All that warning of judgment that Isaiah had been proclaiming up until chapter 40, that's that's what's coming your way if you don't know the Lord Jesus. There's no comfort apart from Christ. And yet in His mercy, God is holding out to you this good news. He's declaring to you this good news. Calling you to turn from your sin and to trust in this Savior whom God has provided. There's no comfort apart from Christ. So won't you hear His word today and repent and believe? For the church, for those who are trusting in Christ, this is the Lord Jesus' word to you as well. Here in Isaiah 40, this promise of comfort is not a mere collection of words. It's the promise of God. Now realized in Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, won't you receive again the comfort of Christ today? As we wait in between the times, won't you look back in faith to the Lord's day and see God's promise fulfilled in the risen Jesus? And then with renewed confidence, won't you look forward to the last day, knowing that the Good Shepherd is coming soon to gather His people forever? That's the Lord Jesus' word to you today. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. It's true, friends. It's gloriously true. And that comfort is found even today in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we look to you this morning as our only hope. Truly, God, we we have no hope apart from you. We have no claim on the comfort of God. We have no claim upon your grace. We deserve only condemnation. And yet, Father, in the richness of Your kindness, You have given us mercy and grace in Christ. Lord, please comfort our hearts today. If there are those among us who do not know the Lord, grant them faith even now. For those of us who belong to Christ, Father, encourage us. Help us, God, to have the faith to be encouraged that there is grace for those who believe. Father, magnify your Son here in His church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.